And now, broadcasting on StarWorldWideNetworks.com, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. Welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Thanks so much for joining us today. Last week, we learned about three children suffering with life-threatening medical conditions until their mothers began treating them with whole plant cannabis. Their road to recovery has been nothing short of miraculous, but the joy of watching their children improve is often overshadowed by the legal consequences or social stigma of defying convention. We also spoke with Kathy Inman, a foot soldier in the marijuana movement who's fighting for the rights of mothers who want nothing more than to make their children well. If the trauma of dealing with a severely disabled child isn't challenging enough, too many mothers are forced to make extreme sacrifices due to antiquated laws. Whenever I hear stories like these, it makes me wonder how or why our elected officials can refuse to enact legislation so that all forms of cannabis can be made available for any child who needs it. Unfortunately, removing political barriers to marijuana reform, even if it means ending the needless suffering of children, has been an uphill battle for moms, patients, and activists alike. It just makes me wonder, if our government won't take the time to change outdated policies for the benefit of our children, maybe it's time for us to make some changes in our government. And that's something that both of my guests today might just have in mind. Hear, hear. And (laughs) that's not all they have in common. They share a burning desire to enact positive change in Washington. Both of them are running for office in the U.S. House of Representatives. They also share an important cause, legalization and regulation of marijuana. Michael Weiser is the Democratic candidate running to represent Arizona's 4th Congressional District. He's the executive director of the Arizona chapter of Normal, the national organization for the reform of marijuana laws. He was also appointed to represent Arizona as a delegate at the Democratic National Convention. Well, sort of. I was elected by the Democratic Party to represent Bernie at the convention. Okay, okay. Anyway, next I'd like to introduce Talia Fuentes. Hello. Hello. She's also running for Congress to represent Arizona's 5th Congressional District. She's a biologist by trade who's passionate about animals and a burning desire to use her gifts for greater good through public service prompted her to change course from veterinarian school to running for public office. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I'm really, really happy that both of you are here today and we have a lot to talk about. I am really thrilled that we have people on board running for Congress with a mission to go in and shake things up a little bit. And I know it's very necessary, and it's it's kind of an interesting political season, isn't it? We're really fortunate, because I actually read on your website uh, that we are taking on the marijuana as a platform for the DNC, so that is huge. Isn't it? Huge, huge, huge. It's very, very good news, I think. And I have to say, it's brave for both of you to be openly speaking out about this, because I think there's still a lot of secrecy around the issue of marijuana and marijuana reform. Yes. 
it's one of those things that once you get started, though, you can't go back. And, and then once you feel the power of, of giving people courage to be more brave in their life, it's almost uh, unthinkable to back off from this. I walk around with uh, my medical card on my shirt hanging off of a lanyard every day, and it gives people that just see me, immediately they feel more comfortable. I, and it's amazing how many people in all sorts of walks of lives are happy to have that connection. Oh, you have a card. I do too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think so. Well, it's always been sort of a secret club, if you yeah. will. But it's, I mean, it's actually been decriminalized in D.C. That happened earlier this year. And it was funny because I was in D.C. when it happened. And I uh, was riding on a bus. And the gentleman was like, oh, we, get, we drove by and you could smell it. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, we're great now because it's decriminalized. So you're probably going to smell that a lot more. So, I mean, it's happening in our nation's capital. What's it's going to happen? We're on that path. They know that it's we're on that trajectory. And ignoring it is not logical to me. We need to face it. We need to be on the forefront of this subject. And anything less is harming it. So, right. And, and harming yeah. the movement, but harming the people who need it. Exactly. Yes. And I've, harming the people who are incarcerated because of it. Leaving yes. them there anyway. Yeah. I've been working on social change since 1989 when I was first asked to start doing political writing instead of just uh, fiction. And we've never had an opportunity to make as much change as we do now. It's like um, the culmination of decades of, uh, of opportunity coalescing in this, this chance right now. We, ha- we have a tremendous opportunity to, to spread the message across the state and make sure that people are talking about this reform instead of brushing it under the rug and going on to other issues. Yeah. Well, I wanted to touch on what your personal beliefs are, both of you, in terms of how we can get a conservative government to start embracing this. What do you really believe the holdups are in Washington in terms of getting some of these measures passed? Like, for instance, the Senate in the appropriations budget they just shot down the ability for banks mm-hmm. to start processing some of this money. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of small things like that that have gotten just so far, and then they get shut down at the last minute. What do you think the holdup is, really? A big part of it is the research that's out there, and we are very limited on the research that we can do on cannabis. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's changing the FDA's guidelines. It's changing how we have marijuana scheduled. There's a lot of factors that play into it, and I think – We need to look at a much bigger step and recognize that marijuana needs to be decriminalized across the board. And the Democrats are taking that on as part of their platform Mm -hmm. that we want to change the perception of what marijuana is. And that is a big part of it is the scientific research. We need to focus on that more, but we have to remove the boundaries that are in the way. And the only way that changes is if you elect officials who recognize that those barriers are in place and help remove them. Well, to your question, um, the reason things haven't changed is because there's people in power who benefit from things staying the way they are. Um, we're here in this state. Um, a lot of people would like marijuana reform to not be a partisan issue, but it is exactly a partisan issue. Yep. The Republicans, the right wing, the conservative uh, agenda, whether they be Republican or Democrat. Um, are trying to maintain um, social control, uh, a status quo, 
power structure and hierarchy that goes back to the last century. <laughs> and keeping uh, cannabis reform in place is part of the whole movement. It's part of the same mentality of uh, defunding education so people don't can't think as well. It's part of the prison nation that we're moving towards. If they lose control over cannabis, then they have a social movement that's one. Because this is not something, the, the cannabis reform movement doesn't come from the people in power. It comes from the guy on the street. It comes from the folks who are got tired of hearing the knock at the door and right. wondering what it's about. It's not uh, top down. So the right have to control this because if they lose this, they've lost yet another thing. The Democratic Party on a national level, is, as Talia was mentioning, as your website uh, points out, is taking uh, this issue to task. It's like a generational. It's very much a us versus them mm-hmm. situation right now. And what I say generational, the younger people in America are tired of being controlled by worn out mechanisms. Right. And there is just so much that's antiquated about the laws around this. Yes. it's Well, they're designed to perpetuate a system of social control. You know, when they come up with uh, manners and protocols, that's to keep the, the weaker person from overpowering the stronger person. This mm-hmm. is all, it's all set up to, to keep us in our place, right? Right. My background comes from the working class and... And so maybe I have a chip on my shoulder from looking and seeing the power structure working against me my whole life. But using cannabis as a method of control, that's documented by uh, Nixon's aide, H.R. Haldeman, came out just recently that it's been part of the game plan at least since the 70s. Mm-hmm. I think also pharmaceuticals, it's a big part of it. Huge. <laughs> they want to keep you on the drugs that they have designed to keep you addicted. Right. Uh, the opioids that they use for pain medication, all the way to anxiety meds that they use for uh, mental disorders. Mm-hmm. They have all of these man-made chemicals that they're putting together that's manipulated by man, and we're turning to them like they are the end-all, be-all, and they know everything. Well, and also the side effects of just normal everyday non-controlled medications as well require you to buy more medications to deal with those side effects. Exactly. It's just one thing on top of another on top of another. And that's the great thing about cannabis is that it's got so many uses, but we can't represent that on a statistical level because we aren't allowed to. They don't want the science to be out there. They don't want us to have that information because then it helps further the cause of marijuana is not wrong. It's not an evil plant. It's not something that we should be denying people. Uh, I mean, I would much rather have somebody smoking marijuana for an, for pain than I would having someone taking an opioid because I know the changes in body chemistry that occur from those pharmaceuticals versus the, what happens when someone smokes a joint. It's very different, and it's a very different headspace, and it produces a very different uh, person behavior. And as a biologist, you have a very unique perspective on that. Yeah, I look much more so on how it's affecting the body chemistry of the individual 
what are the overall benefits that they're achieving, side effects, all of that side has to be considered. And when you look at marijuana, it's like, cool, you got dry mouth occasionally. <laughs> you, still, you get a little bit hungry. Those are side effects that I think most people are willing to deal with. I don't think they're willing to deal with. It could kill you. It could right. make all your hair fall out. It could make your kidneys you know, fail. Right. There's so much the, to it. The number one uh, destroyer of livers in America is Tylenol, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So we, we use stuff all the time that has a uh, much worse impact on us. But for me, this is, we are currently in like the 80 something year of uh, crony capitalism, corrupt act. And every new thing that happens perpetuates this. Like I said, I've been working on social reform since the late eighties, early nineties. There's no issue that I've been able to like get a handle on where the people can actually change it, where if we can change this one issue, it's going to ripple throughout our society. It's going to have impact on the way that that law enforcement operates, on the prison system, on the ways that people get their nutrition, on the way that people do business, you know, mm-hmm. and all these medical innovations that were part of the, the natural progress of cannabis up until 1937 when the marijuana tax act stopped it. Right. Yeah. Cause there are many individuals that I know that would make amazing police officers. They would be brilliant at it, but they don't pursue that sort of career because they're marijuana smokers and it limits the scope of who we are able to bring in as a police official. And I mean, look at it this way. Would you much rather have the police officer that goes home and gets wasted every night because he hates his job and doesn't feel like he's making an impact Or do you want that individual that is a good, solid, grounded human being that is very well-rounded and diverse that smokes weed occasionally? I want the guy that smokes weed. Yeah. 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 Well, and the rationality in the mind, too, after drinking alcohol versus after um, partaking in marijuana. Very different. It's very, very different because one is it, it promotes aggression. The other promotes relaxation (laughs) it promotes hanging out it promotes chilling it's it's a completely (laughs) different headspace with uh, the terrible um effects that being in law enforcement seem to have on people high drug abuse rates high suicide rates domestic violence etc it might be good for them to smoke a little now definitely especially because of ptsd that is huge for law enforcement they're dealing with these traumatic situations every single day the worst of the worst, all the way to the best of the best. You know, they're seeing all aspects of humanity. And Michael likes to bring up that marijuana, it helps your brain forget. That's why it's good for people with PTSD, because it helps their brain process it, move on, and not dwell on that. Right. And imagine how great that would be for our first responders, the people that are dealing with the most traumatic incidences that our society has to offer. Things that most people never see. Exactly. I, I think that those are the individuals that could benefit the most from sitting down and smoking some pot, honestly. Right. So law enforcement, if you have your card, consider this an invite. Yeah. We I will smoke out with any law enforcement officer with his card, of course, because we don't want anybody to have trouble. Exactly. <laughs> don't want to promote breaking the law. Right. So don't want to promote breaking the law. Find me on Twitter. We, we can talk this through. Right. Honestly, we need individuals that are that are ex law enforcement are are involved in law enforcement who have that perspective because well, they're on both sides of the coin. Right. On Sunday, we had an event. Uh, 
championing my campaign and, and the work that uh, I do with Normal. And one of the people there is former law enforcement, and he was having a great time. I, I want to take this second to acknowledge that in the movement, there's this organization called LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, who have really done a great job at putting a um, rational face to the push to end the war on drugs. Folks look at uh, people like myself, even though I'm wearing a tie, I'm wearing a jacket, but they look at me and say, oh, he's just a stoner, uh, so he's just looking out for his own interests. But when law enforcement steps up and say, you know, we know that this is an awful thing to do, then, then people do take it more seriously. Right now, um, one of the people who's suddenly a leading voice on cannabis reform is the Democrat running for uh, county attorney here in in Maricopa County, a man named Diego Rodriguez. And after working in, in the county prosecuting office, he knows it doesn't work. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> he's yeah, he's ready to bring all of his force uh, logic to it. And people want to see that side agree with the change in the issue. Yeah. I mean, we either convert uh, the people in power or replace them. But sooner or later, they got to be on this side of the issue. Right. And the change is coming, I think. Mm-hmm. But the economic benefits of addressing this issue. They're huge. I mean, you look at Colorado, millions of dollars. Billions. They, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I think in a quarterly basis uh, with, with their numbers, it's hundreds of oh. millions. Or I think it's 40. It's 40 to 32 million. Uh, when you break it down in their quarterly. And that's money that's going to education to go fund public roads to help their communities. Yeah. We can look and see what has happened already in this state. So the AMMA gets passed at the end of 2010. The state, in its infinite wisdom, decides to try to block the implementation of dispensaries. So there's no dispensary industry. It really gets up and running until 2013, and that first year of operation, they raise $40 million in revenue. Right. The next year, they raise $125 million. Last year, it was $215 million. And this is still with limited numbers of right. dispensaries. There's, there's, right. There's only uh, 100,000 people in the state that can even purchase marijuana in a state of uh, 6.5 million. The estimates are that in this, when we go to adult use, uh, model instead of just a medical model, mm-hmm. over a billion dollars in in total revenue each year, over 113 million going directly to the state, and that doesn't include the local sales taxes. Right. Last year there were 19 million dollars in local sales taxes collected in addition to the state tax. And when you think of how that money is not going to the cartels to support right. black market, it's actually feeding into a our communities into our schools, like you said. and Oh, yeah. I grew up in the southern tip of Texas, which in the 60s, 70s, and 80s was a major marijuana corridor. It was part of the transfer from Mexico into the United States. And my mom knew people who were shot to death in the drug war. I had a guy that I played with as a kid who grew up to get shot to death in the drug war. So. Mm-hmm. We are already making a tremendous impact on the cartels. The wholesale price of Mexican marijuana has plummeted from $400 a pound wholesale, like what they received when people bought it to bring it into the U.S., went from $400 a pound down to $25 a pound. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the kind of change that, that you know, 
We got them on the run if we just keep up with this. Yeah. That's why I love numbers. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Well, I read recently a report on how many adults in states where adult use is not legal, how many adults actually use marijuana. Oh, and yeah. when you look at the sheer numbers of those people who really are out there spending on the black market because they have no other way to medicate themselves, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so to speak. It's phenomenal how much money there will be. Well, so let's figure that uh, statistics show us that 60% of American adults have at least tried marijuana once. Mm -hmm. So... When I was working with Safe Arizona and now that I'm with Arizona Normal, we use the figure of 10% of the population is probably familiar with it to the point of being irregular users, like people who will continue to use it on a regular basis. So we're talking 30 million people in the country. Mm -hmm. We're talking as many people as died in World War II that are 10% of the population that are currently taken out of being part of the American system can't fully appreciate that American dream. I've smoked with people who are homeless people. I've smoked with millionaires, and they all jump when they're smoking and hear that knock at the door. People don't know how to deal with that. Right. If we took that stigma out of our society, imagine what these folks contribute. If they could trust their government not to be their enemy. Right. I can tell you um, the stigma may be in the American culture, but when you look at the world culture, we are the stoners of the of the world uh, mm-hmm. because Australia, they don't have the same numbers for the individuals that smoke pot. It's not a common thing. It's not somebody that or things that happen at parties. It's and it's not good weed. It's hard to get in. It's hard to grow. It's not part of their culture in the same way that it is here. So that's what I find interesting, too, because I have a feeling that it's Western. It's going to spread to the rest of the world. Yeah, it's definitely something that America has had this odd hypocritical dynamic when it came to international drug use. Very. We created, uh, you know, the protocols on drugs around the world, and yet we are the main consumer. We we have... uh, Presidents having people import cocaine from Nicaragua. We have other presidents making partnerships with the world's leading opioid producer, Harman Karzai. And yet, we're the number one uh, drug dealers. Yeah. And one of the problems to actually going the national legalization route is the fact that America led the war on drugs and Mm -hmm. saving face (laughs) in all of these nations. Right. They made it illegal everywhere else. So now if they change the laws here domestically, they're going to have to deal with all of these other governments who jumped on board the war on drugs as a result of the United States. It's a domino effect, but it'll be will become just like Colorado developed a tourist industry Mm -hmm. surrounded around the marijuana culture. Mm -hmm. Right. The same thing is going to happen for the U.S. And just like with Amsterdam, where you had people where it's like, oh, cool. When we get to the U.S., we can smoke pot. Right. It'll just become one of those things. And hopefully, as it becomes more normalized here, that will spread to the rest of the world. Because, I mean, there's it's used all over the world in different contexts. I mean, there's right. people in Africa that are using it to make their daily money. They'll right. go and they grow it in the field. It's a part of their culture. And they sell it as tea. They sell it to the other farmers because... Farm work is hard. It hurts your joints, it, and it gives them that outlet so that they can relax. Well, I'd, I'd like to point out for American audiences, 
we live in a kind of a 1984 reality when it comes to cannabis. Mm -hmm. Cannabis had been part of the world culture. It was a common fabric that that most people's clothes were made out of, food, fuel, fiber. It was everywhere, not just, yeah, paper. It it was everywhere in the United States. Our forefathers grew it. It was, uh, there were 400,000 acres of cannabis in production during World War II. It was everywhere, and then we removed it from the conversation. We told people it was the boogeyman, and then went through 80 years of one generation passing that lie on to the other. Mm Mm-hmm. So we're overcoming that right now. Luckily, the whole world didn't pay attention, you know, in great depth when uh, Harry Anslinger and then later Richard Nixon were pushing this ridiculous agenda. With the support of DuPont yes. first. <laughs> right. I uh, present a, a class to people on how cannabis became illegal. And when you look at the racism, the crony capitalism, the fact that, that people put their lives to supporting and continuing this prohibition would be heartbreaking, I think, if they really realized yeah. what they're furthering. In, yeah, and I did an article on this in 2010 that actually covers the entire history of what happened to get us to this point. And that leads me to my next topic that I wanted to discuss with both of you. We import billions of dollars in hemp products. Right. Every year, and yet our American farmers cannot grow hemp. There's been a bill sitting in Congress for the last 10 or 15 years, I forget, and one of the more recent, maybe eight years ago, was sponsored by Raul Grijalva right here in Arizona. He was one of the Mm co-sponsors. And for years, people have been trying to get hemp regulation changed. It should never have been a Schedule One narcotic to begin with because there's no drug in it. You smoke it, you get a headache. Yeah, exactly. And we import all these products and our farmers can't partake. Well, this is part of that slippery slope mentality of the conservative world uh, because I want to point out there's been some Republicans that have tried uh, to have legalization. Dana Rawbacher from um, California Mitch McConnell and and <laughs> Rand Paul. Can wow. You, Rand now, Paul, yeah. Can I you mean, think Rand aware Paul. of that. I wasn't yeah. aware of Mitch, Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell is Me like either. not the big stoner in the world. And when he tries to put together a hemp bill, his own party rejected him. While he's, you know, the Speaker of the Senate. You know, he's, a, he's in power, and yet he still couldn't get hemp passed. Do you think that this really is the progeny of those who made it illegal to begin with? The progeny of... Of the big corporate interests? Well, I think that it's moved past that. The original DuPont family, the William Randolph Hearst family, they got their share, and then other people built onto the current industry. Like in this state, for example, uh, we, whenever somebody gets arrested or convicted of a cannabis charge, they have to go through a drug counseling program called the TASC program. So the TASC program, last year, the lady who just retired from being its head made $436,000 in that as the the director. So she's profiting at a great level from from keeping the drug war going. You betcha she invests in the drug war. That's almost half a million dollars. It is. Uh, Recently, um, two of the leading vocal people on on, uh, calling for prohibition, Bill Montgomery here in Maricopa County and Sheila Polk up in uh, Yavapai County, 
Well, Bill Montgomery received $10,000 check from the alcohol industry. So, you know, he has a vested interest in keeping it going. Mm-hmm. So maybe not the, the DuPonts and the, the nylon industry and the paper industry still being the leaders on this, but certainly big pharma. Pharma, if they can't yes. figure out how to make a buck off of it, don't want cannabis legalized. In fact, there's a lot of discussion right now. We're expecting at the end of this month that cannabis will be rescheduled. Yeah, I've yes. heard rumors of that as well. And if it's rescheduled to Schedule 2, that sounds like, yay, that's a big breakthrough. But what it means is that only people doing research will be allowed to, to have it. Mm-hmm. It will immediately put the brakes on the entire medical programs all over the country and, of course, also the legalization programs because Schedule 2 are things that you can only get with the doctor's prescription from a pharmacy. I think a large part of it, though, has to do with the terminology that people are using. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we talk about drug reform, hemp immediately just gets put in with as a drug. And until there's a distinguishing factor that comes up that we can pull hemp and make it something different... And somehow so market it differently. Be scheduled at all? Exactly. Right. But there's we, no drug in it. No, but that's the problem: <laughs> well, is that they're all under an umbrella of this term within our federal government, yeah. and so we can't. And like you said, if we have that bill that's sitting there, it's not been pushed through, and a large part of it has to do with well, a attention and who cares about what when, and B, it has to do with making sure that we can. Um, use terminology that they understand in a way that they understand so that they say, okay, this is not about drugs. This is about product. This is about ensuring that we can have product here. We're not shipping from out of the country. We can grow it here. But a lot of times people are worried, well, if they're going to grow the hemp, then they're going to hide pot or the bad kind or what they consider bad in their fields. And that's what it always comes back to. But at the same time, we need that. We need those resources, especially in Arizona. We have the perfect environment that we could have a hemp industry here. Oh, yeah. And it, it grows in extreme drought conditions. Exactly. It actually take the carbon out of the atmosphere and deposit it right back where we need it in our soil. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and anybody who's seen industrial hemp will not confuse it with Northern Lights Absolutely. 47. It looks they very different. <laughs> yeah, no. It looks very bad. different. Yeah. Yeah. And until people really start recognizing the differences and really distinguishing between what is a drug and what is a product and what we can use as a resource, things aren't going to change. Because we've realized even with gun control, that's the mm-hmm. same problem. When you talk about gun regulation, they hear that term regulation and they don't want anything to do with it. But when you yeah. survey gun owners, they agree with some sort of background check, with some sort of uh, restrictions on who can purchase guns. Yeah. And it all has to do with terminology and how we're phrasing it. And I think right. that's what marijuana and hemp have that problem. We don't know how to separate the two to create a message it, to free hemp so that we can use it as a resource. And then also we want to free marijuana too. So, I mean, there's two sides to the coin. Right. Uh, and it's realizing that these are two very different things that we're talking about. I think I think also that partisan politics gets in the way so much because I think whenever anyone hears the word gun regulation coming from someone on the left or that they know <laughs> is on the left, yep. automatically the walls go up. 
I, I, saw, I won't say the G word. <laughs> I saw a, I saw a, a 15 second video last night, which just got me to thinking. It was it was done by Bill O'Reilly, and he's a known conservative. And he said, "Listen, I I support our Second Amendment rights, but the government said you have the right to bear arms, but they didn't say you have the right to bear arms that could allow you to form a militia." And if you have arms that give you the power to form a militia, you really shouldn't have those. Well, they want a regulated militia. Cause we, we talk about that a lot, about how a regulated militia, if you're going to own a weapon of that caliber, then you should be willing to put yourself in a position where you're establishing a community with your other gun owners, where you're willing right. to train weekly and be involved, register your gun in that capacity so that you're willing to put your life on the line for your community if something comes up in which you need a gun of that size. And if it's not being used and your continual training is not happening, then how are you being a responsible gun owner based off what our constitutional rights are as a a right to bear arms? And nobody seems to mind if you have to take a driver's license test to to drive a car. No, But But let's talk about weed. Yeah, let's do. (laughs) Let's do. Yeah. So... I think that the same is true when you do talk about marijuana, too, and people who are staunchly opposed to it. If they hear something about it coming from the left, like when they hear gun control coming from the left, it, the walls go up. Right. People believe that if we had uh, greater access to cannabis, that society's structures will fall down. I'm not <laughs> sure why they believe that. I mean— one of the things that, if, if you worked on a, an article on the history of prohibition, you know that during the 1800s, America did have a lot of drug problems. Not not cannabis in specific, but we had an alcohol problem. We had opioid. an opioid problem. Uh, Opium and, itself. Right. Mm-hmm. Laudanum was uh, put on babies' gums to help <laughs> them sleep, you know? And cocaine was put on babies' guns to clean their teeth. <laughs> Oh, yeah. They use everything. Yeah. Uh, there's actually an HBO Maybe show. He likes to thing. clean his teeth. Why? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I understand that there was an impulse of people being afraid that these substances were a problem, but that was manipulated. You know, we're now in a stage where we can know better. And, and it, that's why we're here on this radio show, making sure that, that we get people to start seeing past these old mythologies. Because they say like a drug user, when you have someone that's in the affluent class that's using a drug, it's like, oh, let's go get them help and treatment and see how we can save this life. When it's somebody that's of a lower socioeconomic class, it's like, well, this is our prisoner and we need to put them away. They're a third time offender for drugs. They're now going to be a felon for the rest of their life. And it's the, the three strikes rule. And it gives it's like, give me a break. How is this human life? any less valuable just because what they don't have the same amount of money as you do. Mm-hmm. And I can't stand that. I can't stand for the injustice that. Justice is oh. staggering. It's Let's crazy. Talk about the value of human life though. Here's this, uh, in a state where we spend what 49th in the nation on student funding, mm-hmm. a human life is worth a, well, it's supposed to be $8,000, but I was teaching in a school where it was $5,300 per pupil Per year, that was the total amount of funding. Uh, meanwhile, uh, it's $69,000 a year to house a prisoner. So when it comes to dollars and cents, if you want to look at the way that some people look at human life and what it's worth, a prisoner is worth way more than a student. 
And we got to get rid of those guys, the people who think that way, mm-hmm. because they are destroying our country. We've gone from well, being a country where we've faced a 50-year, 70s to now, decline in crime, and yet we have a steady increase in incarceration. It's because they're using incarceration and those statistics to further their model. They're using the numbers of the people that are currently incarcerated. And until we change what those laws are and what it means to be incarcerated and what we're actually jailing people for, because once we change that, they won't have those numbers. Well, and getting people out of the mindset of believing that a drug user is a criminal as opposed to some who are addicts, that's a disease and it's Mm -hmm. common knowledge. The number one a uh, substance abuse issue, according to the World Health Organization, is sugar. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and I met with, uh, well, no, sugar. Uh, and it's leaked to hundreds of thousands of deaths worldwide each year. It's the number one problem we have, a uh, diabetes and obesity epidemic that's reshaping the population. We're now at a place where there's as many people in the world who are overweight and sick because of that as there are who are starving and sick because of that. Right. And I, I went to um, Mary Lee Fowler, who's the executive director of Matt Force, Arizona's leading prohibitionist group. And I said, well, what about sugar? And she's like, oh, you're one of those kinds. <laughs> you know that that's not a drug. And I said, no, actually, I believe that anything that you take into your body that has some chemical impact on your system is and a drug. causes addiction. Exactly. Well, whether it causes addiction or not, you know. It does, though. The it research does. backs Pepper. it up. This, yeah. this Dr. Pepper she has here. Same it thing. It has a, an assortment of chemicals in it that are going to have an impact on her. That's a drug that she but has chosen. But not only like that, but a high fructose corn syrup. Yes. You know, which it's is huge. basically putting sugar on steroids. Yeah. And that's in everything, and it's unregulated. There was uh, some friends that they had adopted a child from China and they brought them here and they were used to that Chinese diet and they got to the U.S. and they became obese, like overweight very quickly and mm-hmm. were demanding cake and demanding all these things because our diets are so high in that sugar. It's like for them, how can they say that it's not addictive? Mm-hmm. Well, you look at the history of spices. Now, people put spices on food by choice, right? So it's a chemical that you're adding to your life by preference. Mm -hmm. But the history of spices shows us that they have developed in India originally, and they were for medicinal purposes. Mm -hmm. So what we're taking into our system are all drugs, and everything that we're taking into our system is a drug. So I think we need to stop empowering the people who want to use that four-letter word as if it was a mark of evil. Right. I, my uh, wife takes uh, metformin, which is a uh, something for her diabetes. It's a drug. If she didn't get it, her life would get worse. So is she an addict? No, she's a diabetic. Right. Right. Hmm. At least we have, we're heading in a direction that is allowing us to expand what our ideas are about what we can treat people with. Um we can look at things like obesity and we can look at all these different things. We can actually find uses with cannabis for these different things. I've heard of uh, people creating supplements with uh, marijuana. And then I've heard 
of people creating skin products from, from marijuana. There's just all of these different directions that you can take this plant in. So it's hard for me to just be like, oh, it's addictive, so we must get it off the table. It's like, okay, we have lots of substances in our culture that are addictive. So why Television. why is marijuana? Exactly. Any our brains, we are on we are dopamine addicts. Our yeah. whole culture is about using that dopamine against us mm-hmm. and getting us addicted. And so for me, it's really hard for me when people are like, well, it's a drug. It's addictive. Yes, it, everything can be addictive in some capacity. It depends on what your brain finds good and what it finds bad. Yeah. I am an oxygen addict. Me too. <laughs> I think most biological creatures are. So it's just, it's sad the direction that some people like to take it. But we got, we, ha- we have to be thankful that marijuana is headed in a very positive direction. I'm so happy that the Democratic Committee has taken yeah. marijuana onto their platform because. That in itself is huge. Right. It, that has been something that we've been working on here in this party pretty seriously since 2011, but starting in 2010. In 2011, after the election cycle, I went to a, a party meeting of the progressives. You know, the progressives are the folks that are going to change the world, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, same people I had known who banded together like to oppose Bush or or minimum wage, or, you know, all sorts of of very emotional, hot topic issues. So we're going to reorganize the party. What are going to be the top issues for the Democratic Party progressives for 2011 going forward? And they filled up a whole whiteboard with different things that were very valid and very emotional, and there wasn't one topic dealing with the drug war. And so I finally got my courage to raise my hand and said, what about (laughs) cannabis reform? And the chair of the caucus goes, you mean dope? (laughs) Who's next? And just totally dismissed that. Wow. So at first, we were dealing with a lot of progressives who were afraid to have the political balls to stand up on this issue as well because it's been demonized so powerfully. People, you know, you don't support the drug war. What kind of commie are you? Right? (laughs) Right. See, but we're not there anymore. And that's what's great because I was raised by a man who was a Republican, but he was also a very liberal Republican and impressed on me at a really young age, the difference between what a drug is that's manipulated by man that you don't know what's in it that can give you crazy side effects, or you can opt for a plant that grows out of the ground that was given to us by nature. Uh, Well, and that is perfectly matched to support our endo cannabinoid system yeah yes and i mean in all part of, human or all uh, biological creature mammals have this system mm-hmm. yeah the cannabinoid system of things that produce it that could be consumed by people by other creatures that use it goes back 480 million years mm-hmm. that's a lot of evolution right i love yeah. evolution and the evidence is just amazing as to how much it was used in industry before recorded history mm-hmm. you know, they're starting to find a lot of evidence. Yeah. There's right. a staple in every society. Oh, See, that's yeah. what I mean about the whole 1984 kind of Orwell newspeak. Because people don't even know that, the, that it existed. You know, it, did you know it used to be part of the uh, Catholic sacrament up until the 1400s? Mm-hmm. And it used to be accepted in the Muslim religion up until the late 1300s. Right. So it was everywhere. But then once people started like, Oh, you can't you can't have it. Then they start like erasing it out of history, and yeah. it's 
weird that we have to rediscover something that goes back 10,000 years. It's, it's interesting how many substances that would cause pleasure have become taboo over time. You know, what is it about that? Well, remember I was talking about old model of control? Mm-hmm. If people have pleasure, then they don't necessarily pay attention to you. Mm-hmm. If you can control their access to pleasure, what, what they're allowed to have, then you have, you know, right near the, right near the scrotum. You got people right at the base of who they are, right. their access to what they're allowed to do. Imagine what life must have been like for the pilgrims. No dance, no drink, no socializing, only wearing drab colors, have to have a miserable life so you can have rewards in heaven. Those people were controlled. Yeah. Yeah. You could send those guys <laughs> off to war en masse and they would die because they didn't know what life was like. No, so thank you. We, we seem to understand this issue, the three of us sitting here, very well. So how do we get people who know little about it to understand the importance of it? I don't know if those people necessarily are the mart, like are the ones that we need to appeal to because. But they're, they're constituents. They're people yeah. who can go to the polls. How do we let people know just how important this issue is and that it's going to affect their future? I think it's inspiring people uh, that don't vote, that think that they're disenfranchised because that is a large percent of the population in Arizona. They're just not active voters. They're not appealed to be voting. Uh, and we need to, we're changing that it is changing. And a big part of that is also just being vocal about it and not mm-hmm. being afraid to be vocal about mm-hmm. it because it's like you said, it's been in the dark. It's been in secret. But now we literally have someone that is in the House of Representatives currently, uh, Ruben Gallego, who came out as pro marijuana reform. Right. Yeah. I saw that. And yeah. so. It's just continuing to just make it normal because the more you talk about it, the more it's around, the more it's in your face, the less you're going to care about it because you're going to be like, oh, it's just normal. That's just part of our life. It's culture. I mean, I remember beer. It's the same thing. Is It's normal at a social gathering for Americans to have beer. Right. Right. And it wasn't always that way. We had prohibition for alcohol, and that made it more. People wanted it more, and it created a whole other dynamic. But same thing. I think of the way that people have seen the LGBT issue change will be a big social way that, that cannabis is going to change. Now that people don't have to be as afraid of cannabis, their own cannabis use, there's more people coming out of the closet. When you know that... Your cousin that you like is a marijuana smoker. Well, maybe marijuana smokers aren't as awful. When you know that your aunt who was dying uh, had her final months improved by cannabis, well, cannabis is not such a terrible thing. Mm-hmm. You know, People are, are developing uh, their understanding in that way. A project that Normal's doing in light of this year being an election year on cannabis, we're organizing with rural places around the state you know, not just in my congressional district, but around the state to hold hearings uh, for the local public about you know what people will be voting for. And that gives us an opportunity to talk about cannabis in, in a, you know, the history of the prohibition, the history of, of the medical use. For example, tonight I'm going to uh, Sun City to make a presentation to a group about what the legalization is going to bring and what the truth is about the medicine as opposed to the stories that they get filled with. I think that is so incredibly important. 
Oh, yeah. We just need to continue to be involved, continue to have a voice, mm-hmm. and keep pushing because little by little, we're getting where we need to go. If you look at where we were 10 years ago, it's a totally opposite ball game. And I've got siblings that are a lot younger than I am. I'm 10 years older than my middle youngest sibling. And their opinions of marijuana are very loose. They see it as it's normal, that this is something most people do and most people have as a part of their lives. So as the generations go on and get older, things are things are going to change. I mean, it may not be overnight. It may not be right this second. But in November, we're going to have an initiative on the ballot that's going to tax marijuana like alcohol and to have it be like alcohol. So we're arriving. We're, we're almost there. Right. My younger daughter and her friends talk about seeing the prohibition as a sign of how stupid our outlook is. Until we can fix this, we can't fix most anything. The younger people see the hypocrisy of the drug war, the hypocrisy of you know, the medical prohibition, and they're just waiting for us to fix it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they've been telling my generation since I was a kid, you got problems coming. You guys got to fix it. So guess what? We're here. I'm ready to fix it. Marijuana is a big part of that. We need that funding if we want to keep continuing to fix the problems that the previous generations left us with. Yeah. (laughs) And I think this whole issue of marijuana exemplifies how much hypocrisy there is. So much. In every other sector. And it really is time to make some serious changes in our government. Yeah, and the only way that that's going to happen is if, like I keep saying, if we elect people that represent these values. And a big part of that, and I hate to say it, but it's money. We Mm -hmm. need donations. We need funding. We need people to get behind us and support these causes because without that funding, we're not going to be able to compete with the major players, the dark money that's infested our state. We're not going to have and the that dark money that's that's invested in candidates who are going to exactly. proliferate these problems right. and keep prohibition well, in place. We have the dream of equal opportunity, but right now I don't have equal opportunity to compete in a yacht race because <laughs> I have to afford a yacht and a crew and all that stuff, right? <laughs> right. Some things are designed to where you don't have the equal opportunity. Well, and, and running for public office. Running for public office is, is actually meant to be that way. One, one of the things that we talked about in our campaign is you have to collect uh, over a thousand signatures to be a, a congressional candidate. Why do they have this kind of figure? Because not everybody can do it. And, you know, it saves you from having a lot of idiots in office if you can't even figure <laughs> right. out how to get a thousand signatures. Right. But the scale of the problem of electing people is now something that involves millions of dollars. We're upstart congressional candidates, but an average congressional race is going to be in the millions of dollars. Right. So your regular person is not used to thinking in those terms that, oh, my God, I have to to – Support the candidates. So well, that, that's and part of what a makes... whole other conversation. Once you're in Washington, I'll come visit you because yeah. Oh, yeah. I'd like to see major reform with elections. That's part of what makes our race unusual. And there's often people who are called protest candidates who uh, just want to be sure that somebody gets on the ballot. Mm-hmm. And I had started that way back in 2012, but by now we have an actual movement going. We have you know, like something that, that is creating some, some effort, and we're just regular people. Mm-hmm. I moved to Phoenix, kissed my wife goodbye, and told her I'd see her as soon as I could, and got on a Greyhound bus and came to Phoenix 
with a suitcase and a guitar and a computer to try to make this two-year cycle work. The fact that we're just regular people is a clue that everybody can at least start trying. And right. then, of course, we need the money, Every, well, but, but everybody can start trying. We can have our campaign. Yeah. yeah. Because you have to make a difference. Uh, but we're in a position now where the political climate is in such a place that we really could make a difference if we get the right money behind us. That's really what it comes down to. Unfortunately, uh, we do have a little bit and we've gotten off the ground and that's the first step. And what's interesting is we actually were at an editorial board meeting with the Arizona Republic before we came here. And this kid, he's, he's a Bernie supporter and he's done his own movement. He's not done it with the party and really not been involved. And he's looking at me like I am this candidate that's been built by the party. And it's because I have the positive attitude. It's because I know how to talk to people. I know how to interact and it's walking the walk and talking the talk. And that's probably the biggest asset to this community is really having a strong, solid voice for it. Right. And the more people that we have, the further we're going to go. Right. And as you're out in the community, too, as people see that you are regular, just like them, I think that it's so important for them to understand that our Mm -hmm. representatives should be a representation of our communities, not just put up on a pedestal because they've got corporations in their back pocket who are supporting them, who they turn around and support later. Right. And they just want to push their ideals. Right. Yeah, We need to stop thinking about supporting people because of their their economic position or mm-hmm. even even their expertise, which sounds kind of counterintuitive. But, you know, the world's in the situation it is with all these experts all around us telling us exactly how things should go. And it's still a mess. Mm-hmm. So the experts may know what they're talking about. But they're not down in the trenches yeah. with everyday people who have to live with their decisions. Exactly. exactly. So... Uh, you know, we have a problem that was very public or very visible in uh, education. It's also a big problem in social entrepreneurship or charity work, this sort of thing, where you end up with a whole level of people who are consultants who make the money and then the problems don't get solved because the consultants need to keep their jobs in place. Right. Right. <laughs> so having experts on hand is not necessarily the solution Really, it depends on where the spirit of the person is, their personal entrepreneurship, their values. Are they going to make decisions that are going to look out for American public or are they going to make the wonky decision? Seems like it does, but actually just benefits their donor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very well said. Yeah. I think we should probably try to wrap this up. But what I wanted to do is get a final statement from each of you. What do you want people to know the most about you as a candidate, but also about this movement? What I really want people to know the most is, is I'm really about the scientific studies that exist and the scientific reasoning that we need to bring to the medical marijuana, to the marijuana industry. Uh, The more that we're able to research, the more that we're able to build the positive reputation of marijuana, the closer we're going to get to true marijuana reform. Mm -hmm. I want people to know that they can change the world, that my life is just the, the result of me trying to make changes and succeeding because I didn't give up. I, I'm a former school teacher, and now I'm a political leader, 
and so much of what my life has been about this century and going back even the last century is about inspiring people to have courage in their own self. As much as I'm running for my own personal life, I'm running as an example to all these people out there that it can work, that you can stand up, you can change the country. We've been told that we can't because that's how the people who keep us oppressed keep us oppressed. If we don't have the courage and the strength and the wisdom and the faith in ourselves to fight back, then we won't. So that's the most important message that I'm going to get out. Once upon a time, cannabis was terribly illegal, and now we're at the verge of legalizing it. Once upon a time, the average citizen was just a cog in the wheel of the plutocrats who had the monopolies, and kids were old from working by the time they were 14, and there were terrible health conditions. Uh, just 100 years ago, our country was in that shape, but folks decided that they could fight against it instead of just sitting in their oppression. So my running is very much of the moment trying to change the result of this election. But more than that, it's to try to change the way that people look at their own lives and look at their country. We can control this if we stop saying the other guys have. See, I I thought I was focusing on marijuana. You made it all like deep and your platform is for greater good. Yeah. Well, it's for science as well. So, so that science can really be representative. But of- the, your raison d'etre, basically. Your reason for being here is you wanted to go out and do things that would make positive change. And I think that that's what you wanted to do too. It's mm-hmm. it's the one thing that sets you apart, I think, from other candidates. Well, they all say that they feel this way. And I think that several of them do. But Some, yeah. Some are just using it as a tagline and some get exactly. so caught up in the process of the compromise that they forget what it's like to be the ditch digger. Yeah, yeah. The and forget what it's like to be a human being almost. Well, how do you get to Washington and keep the integrity of that in oh. office when people understand that they've got representatives that represent them going to Washington? You may get a little jaded while you're there. Oh, but, see, I'm not worried about the jaded part. But I, <laughs> I think if the commitment is to hold on to that integrity of who you are when you went into this campaign and keep that as part of your everyday platform, this country is going to be a lot better off. The problem that, that we have right now, the way that electoral politics are shaped, especially at the federal level, a sitting uh, congressman are supposed to raise about $20,000 a week to keep their position. They spend 20 to as much as 40 hours a week on their fundraising. Now, if I don't raise $1,400 every month, my house gets foreclosed on. So I understand that I have to raise money. If I don't raise money, I sleep in Podunk, Arizona because I didn't have gas, right? right. <laughs> so I do understand that, that you have to have funds. But when it gets to the point where it's always about the money chase, you can't really focus on the issues. So I believe that like, we're trying to make our campaign controversial as a way of earning our media so we can discuss the issues instead of having to raise the money to buy the media. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And the cannabis field is something that, that's been crying for dramatization, been trying for somebody to, to have the balls to stand up and talk about it. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So how can people donate to your campaigns? How can they uh, learn more about you? Yeah, I'm on Act Blue. 
So you can search for me, Talia Fuentes. It's T-A-L-I-A-F-U-E-N-T-E-S. Or they can go to my website, TaliaForCongress.com. And it's Talia, T-A-L-I-A, and four F-O-R. I was just uh, informed by my staff during the course of being here this afternoon that my website should be live by the time this show airs. So michaelweiser.org, that's M-I-K-E-L-W-E-I-S-S-E-R dot dot org. O-R-G. Yeah, because I'm about the org, not about the com, right? <laughs> and yeah, like Talia, I'm on ActBlue. ActBlue is PayPal for the Democratic Party, basically. Yeah. If you type in my name, M-I-K-E-L. Uh, and yes, you know, if everybody that supported us gave us $27 a piece, you know, we would be, of course... Just like Bernie, changing the world. And until the public realizes that I'm one person, she's one person, we're individuals, it's a campaign, is all these people inspired on the same concept. Mm-hmm. doesn't have to be about Michael Weiser or Bernie Sanders or Talia Fuentes. In fact, exactly, we did a, a video together called Build a Bernie Congress about how we need to have everybody working on these ideas. Bernie is a great leader, but... If it's just one man, it will fail. Right. We all need to embrace this. I wanted to point out, because you, you asked um, keeping our heads and keeping making sure that we don't lose our integrity once we get to Washington. And I wanted to bring up that just because I didn't get to answer, but it was more, I've been around a lot of people and interviewed a lot of musicians, and you could see the difference between those that care about the music and that are real musicians and those that are just a rock star there to play a character. And I think that we are the true musicians, the true politicians that really want to make a difference and make art out of what policy can be mm-hmm. and truly make an impact on the people and inspire them in a, in a unique way. Because there's so many candidates out in America that are built by their staff. Yes. But I've been doing this stuff for long enough. I'm already a brand. I'm already a track <laughs> record. If yeah. if somebody from the NRA wants to complain about my opinion on guns, they can go back to the 1990s and read what I wrote, you know? Right. It's, right. it's all out there already. So figuring out who you want, are inside yourself and just sticking with that, that's what has created our appeal so far. People are sick of the regular politicians. I had a, a consultant once tell me, Boy, if we just changed everything about you, you could win. And I said, <laughs> what about the people who already like me? Right. And he said, well, they don't matter because they'll still like you. And I said, why? <laughs> why should they? Because the, the fact that I won't change is one of the things that they like about me. Right. Right. But that's just a reiteration of my early message to you out there. And you can start your own campaign just by being yourself yeah. and not believing that, that it's guaranteed to fail. No, just be you. That's all that matters. Don't deny yourself possibility. Because I have done some truly amazing things in life by just thinking it was possible and just by paying attention to the opportunities that are out there. Yeah. And it's led me to amazing places. It's you led me to being... badly a- enough, all you have to do is really want it. Exactly. And I wanted social change enough that I'm running for Congress. Yeah. Michael's running for Congress. Right. We're putting ourselves in positions to help the most people that we possibly can. Well, I tell you what, I'm inspired by both of you. And I wish you... The absolute best of luck in these in this campaign. I think that both of you deserve to be in Congress, and I pray you will be, because <laughs> I think that we need real people 
in our government who can go in and effect change because they're inspired to do what's right. Exactly. And not because they're trying to do favors for people who put big dollars into their campaigns. Yeah, or play the system. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm going to do all I can this decade to run for Congress, but here's what I want. I want one of your listeners to be the person I vote for next decade. Somebody like out there in TV land, I want you to do this so we can champion you too. That is a call to action. Yes. I like that it. is a call to action. Anyway, I want to say thank you so much to both of you. Michael Weiser and Talia Fuentes, look them up. They're going to Washington and uh, we think that they're going to make some incredible changes there. So please get out and vote. And please visit thecannabisreporter.com to learn more about today's topic or to subscribe to our weekly podcasts. I'd also like to thank Kyle Pratt, our amazing engineer, for running the board for us today. And thank you all for listening. I'm Snowden Bishop, the Cannabis Reporter, over and out. And until we meet again, make it a great day. Evergreen is calling, evergreen is always.